0: Today's episode of the Mission Daily is brought to you by Jamf Now, the number one device management solution for all your company's Apple devices. To learn more about how Jamf Now can help you secure your Macs, iPads, or iPhones, head to jamf.com missiondaily mission daily to set up your first three devices for free. That's jamf.com slash mission daily or click on the link in the show notes.
1: In today's episode of The Mission Daily, I sit down with Danielle Teller. Danielle is a writer, researcher, and so much more. She's written two books. The first one was Sacred Cows, which I especially enjoyed. And the second was her first foray into fiction. And that book is called All The Ever After. In today's episode, we talk about both. We talk about tricky subjects that are not fun to talk about in public, like divorce, childhood, struggles, how difficult it is to be a writer, and so much more. Sit back, relax, and enjoy today's episode. With Danielle Teller. Danielle, thank you so much for taking the time.
2: Well, thank you for having me. I'm this really is happy to be here.
1: This is really exciting. So I mentioned outside that I first encountered your work about a year ago. My wife's friend was reading Sacred Cows, and the title stood out. I like interesting titles like anybody else. I tend to judge books by their cover. I'm guilty as anyone with that, and it had a great cover. So I looked into it more, started reading, and I was blown away. I didn't realize how much. I had a false worldview, maybe, that wasn't informed by data. So I'm excited to have you here today to hopefully talk about some of those things, present them for listeners, and hear about what you're up to. When people ask you what you do, how do you usually respond?
2: I usually just say I'm a writer. And then if they want to dig further, then I give a little bit more detail.
1: So what type of books do you write?
2: I think of myself primarily as a novelist. My first novel was just published at the end of May. And I'm working on my next one. Thank you. But I've written a lot of nonfiction, as you alluded to. Sacred Cows is nonfiction. And I've written a number of thought pieces and op-eds and so on. I think that the unifying quality of my writing, the thing that I'm most interested in is looking at the world through different lenses. So I think that we're highly social animals and we tend to take a lot for granted. You know, growing up, we're told that society operates in a certain way. And then oftentimes when you're thrown into a situation, you realize that maybe those assumptions aren't true. So that's a sort of a unifying thread through all of my writing.
1: seems like many institutions were You know, personalization is not in their vocabulary or in what they do in practice. And one of my favorite quotes is that culture is not your friend by the late and great Terrence McKenna. How do you view culture and society? Do you view these systems as friendly sometimes? Do you view them as having inherent wisdom or do you view them as something that's very provisional that needs to be maybe replaced from time to time or at least upgraded?
2: I have a generally positive view. I think that we need organizing forces in our lives. Sure. I think that culture gives us touchstones that we can all relate to. So we have a starting point to have conversations and starting points with which to relate to one another. We have, I think it's really important to have certain assumptions and not have to every day start from first principles and say I'm going to build this relationship with you with no knowledge whatsoever about how we should be interacting.
1: It's a bit time consuming, right? Adds yeah, up after a while. That, yeah,
2: <laughs> I think that wouldn't work very well. But I think because it's so handy to be able to take these shortcuts and make these assumptions about people, about relationships, sure. and so on, we don't always question them when we should. And so, I guess. That's my sort of little corner of writing is about questioning these assumptions and saying, it's not always like, it's more complicated.
1: Yes, it always seems to be the case. Where'd you grow up and where did the passion for writing and interest in these topics, where do you think it came from?
2: I grew up in Canada. We moved around a lot. My dad worked for a chemical company. And back then when the company said, move, you just moved. And so we went from city to city. And I was... A total bookworm. I spent so much time in libraries when I was a kid. I lived for a while when I was in elementary school, I lived in a small town where the whole library was just a trailer. <laughs> and I went through every kid's book twice and then moved on to the adult section because there just wasn't, you know, enough to read. So I've we had, always We
1: had a bookmobile too. Fun side note, Did sorry to inter- <laughs> interrupt, but it was an old busted bookmobile and uh-huh. some of my best memories, the only positive memories I have of elementary school were getting to go to the Bookmobile or the library. And yeah, I was just thrilled with those. What type of books stood out to you on the bookshelves? Were you reading everything? Were you, yeah, how do you pick books back then?
2: So when I was really young, I was, you know, Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew and Mysteries and so on. And then I really got into science fiction and fantasy. So a real huge fan of Narnia and Tolkien series and Same. Isaac Asimov and Ray Bradbury. I was really into those stories. And I I think part of it was just their wonderful stories and examinations of human nature and culture. But also, I I think I liked them that they weren't actually relationship-based, which is kind of – it's been interesting to me that the older I've gotten, the more I like to read about relationships. But when I was a kid, I just wanted it to be cleaner than that. Like, I didn't want to deal with the complexity of people interacting. And science fiction is, you know, it's more about the story, the plot than it is about the sort of characters interacting usually. And I think (laughs) I was was into that.
1: Yeah. Same here. Outside of Asimov, were there any sci-fi books that really blew your mind or that you kind of like shocked you? Because I can remember coming across some science fiction for me where I was like, where are these people at? This is so cool that they're talking about this stuff. Why aren't more people imagining the future or at least different futures? What were you thinking when you first encountered sci-fi? Because for me, from a small town in Maryland, it was like a paradigm shift.
2: So the the pieces that stick in my mind the most are actually short stories. And the ones that I love the most usually had a twist at the end that, again, and this is a common theme, it's come up again, but it makes you see the world differently right. than you did before. So well, one of them was an Asimov story about entropy and sort of took us through time, generation after generation of everything sort of falling apart due to entropy. And then at the very end, the last line of the story was, let there be light. I don't know. It just felt like it put things in perspective
1: That's just about the powerful. universe. Yeah. It <laughs> was a powerful ending.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then there was another one. I don't remember who the author was, but there was one I really liked. It was a very, very short story. And I think other people may have read it in school, but it was about a century in a war among worlds. And the century was talking about how these aliens they were fighting were so horrible. And then at the very end, you realize that he was talking about humans, Right. that the humans were the aliens. And so I loved stuff like that when I was a kid.
1: I think that th- those types of stories are so important for us to start imagining ourselves in the position of other species or thinking about what it would be like to be another type of being. So important. So you're growing up, you're reading a lot. What else are you doing? What's what was exciting or what are some of your best memories from childhood?
2: I had such an idyllic childhood. I had this wonderful family. My parents were amazing and my brothers. I'm still really close with my brothers. So my favorite memories are from our camping trips and sort of their, the family time that we spent together where we just had so much fun. I mean, we just my dad, especially, was very playful so yeah, just we would, when we went camping, we'd have fights, we'd bring these air mattresses into the water and we'd have these pirate fights where we'd try to take over each other's air mattress. Or when we went tobogganing, we'd do the same thing with the toboggans <laughs> and we'd try to hijack each other's toboggans. Yeah. That was the most fun.
1: Where do you think your dad got that type of playfulness from? Was it from his family? Was he just like that? Did he decide to be like that?
2: I think he was just excited about having kids. He had kids really young. It definitely wasn't from his own family because his dad died when he was eight and his his stepfather didn't always get along when he was growing up. So I think he just was excited to have kids and he saw it as a way to re-experience his own childhood in a way, I think. Mm -hmm. So to have the fun that he missed having.
1: So during school, are you getting ready for college? Were you really excited about academics? Or yeah, how's that transition out of high school and into college for you?
2: So I was a total goody two shoes and also really frightened of the world. My brothers both went off and became musicians and lived hand to mouth and like had the rock and roll life. And I was the polar opposite I was a really good student. I always did what I was told. And so there was no question that I was going to go to school, but I was even scared to go, to leave home, like to go to university. I got so homesick, even in high school, if I was away for a week. And so I just remember I was living in Edmonton, Alberta at the time, and I had to choose between going to the local university or going out east. And my dad and I used to run together all the time. And we'd talk about all kinds of things. We'd talk about his work and life. And I remember saying that I was scared and and he was saying, oh, you're like the rocket ship. The struts are still there, but now they're going to (laughs) fall away and you're going to take off into outer space. And I thought, I just don't feel... That <laughs> you way, know, yes. like
1: an exciting just, narrative to exit on, though I That's think cool. the
2: world is really scary.
1: Yeah.
2: <laughs> so I went to college, and my first year was horrible. Partly I was homesick, but also I had never really learned how to study because I went to a very small high school that wasn't very academic, sure. and it was easy for me to get good grades. And then all of a sudden, I was catapulted into this environment where you had to take in so much more information and learn at a much faster pace. And also, at the time in Canada, Ontario still had grade 13. So okay. a lot of the kids had an extra year of high school during which they took some of the same classes that they sort of repeated in university, and I hadn't had that. Gotcha. And because I'd had good grades in high school, we had to talk to a counselor when we got to university and they advised us on which classes we should take. And this advisor told me to take advanced everything. So I was in advanced math, advanced physics, advanced chemistry, like it was insane. And so Did that I feel
1: really ambitious out of the time, like put, pulling you out of your comfort zone or was that, were you ready for that? I that was point? not
2: ready for that. Yeah. I was, I mean, I just listened again. I was a goody two shoes. I was like, okay, if that's what I should do, then I should do that. <laughs> and then I, and then I dropped out of advanced physics on the first day because I got there and the professor made a joke about how the regular level of physics, they actually didn't take friction into account. And everyone laughed, thought this was hilarious. And I was like, "I just, no, I think I could go to the class that doesn't take fiction into account in the problems.
1: Yeah. <laughs> doesn't sound too easy. Yeah. Did you find that that type of philosophy served you well, or do you now like ever go back to that? And when you're making two decisions, do you tend to choose the more ambitious of the two, or did that change your mental model for decision making?
2: I think actually what it taught me, so I, so I did drop out of the advanced physics, but I stuck with the other advanced classes and struggled in the beginning, but then eventually overcame. You know, I, sure. I learned how to study. I learned how to get help when I needed help. And so it actually, I think, taught me to push myself that I should try it because you never know what right. you're going to be able to accomplish. I mean, it's a very small anecdote, but in the summer times, I used to work as a summer student at the manufacturing plant where my dad worked. And I was obviously really new to that kind of work. And I remember one day the sandblaster, I was blasting these valves for these chlorine tanks that we we packaged chlorine in one of the parts of the plant and it broke down. And so I told my supervisor, the sandblaster is not working. And he just looked at me and said, we'll go fix it. <laughs> and I thought, I, how would I know how to fix this? Yeah. But I went and I took the back of the machine off and it turned out to be something very simple. There was just like a hole in a hose that was obvious and needed to be plugged. And I fixed it. And that also sort of stuck with me that like, you think you can't do something, but then you if try, you just try. It seems,
1: like, it's completely different than what you imagine. Sometimes. Yeah, just yeah.
2: go to the base of the climb. Like maybe you'll be able to do it.
1: <laughs> Wise words. So was medicine on your radar at this point? you're, Were you starting to become interested or drawn to it?
2: Yeah. I So I did a decision tree analysis with my dad when I was starting university decision, yeah. about what, what I wanted to do. And so I had to list all the factors, all the things that I was looking for in a career. And then give a weighting to what I thought each career, you know, how it would deliver. And I was totally unimaginative in my list. I really had very little exposure to different jobs. I didn't really know what was out there. So I had like go to business school and be like my dad or become a doctor or become an engineer or a lawyer. Like those were the sort of only things on my sure. on my list, which in retrospect is was a very narrow list. But when I scored for things that were important to me, so again, I was a little bit of a frightened young lady going out into the world and so you know job security was important to me and having worked in manufacturing not just in the plants but also in the office i knew that it was very sexist and i really didn't want to work in an environment where that was normal yeah and i thought that medicine would not be like that and it was also really important to me one of the things that working in the plant taught me was that 40 hours a week is a lot of time doing something you don't
1: like. It is. It adds up quickly.
2: Yeah. And so I wanted to do something where I felt like I was helping other people, where I was making the world a better place, where at least I was a net positive in the world and where I felt challenged and was enjoying what I was doing. And so, you know, medicine it fit all those boxes. It was a very dry way, to, I guess, to to pick my career, but it fit,
1: so... And when you got to your first residency or postdoc, what is it called when you first go to the hospitals? The internship. Your internship. Was that a shock? Was that a, oh, I knew it would be like this type situation or was it another situation where it wasn't what you imagined?
2: Oh, My life has been this wandering road. <laughs> so I'm not, it's funny, my husband is so goal oriented. He's always known his whole life what he wanted to do and he's just worked toward it. Relentlessly, whereas I just wander down the path, la di da. I think I'll take this fork in the road, yeah. and so I did that all through my whole medical career as well. I, I thought initially I wanted to do primary care and international health, and I was involved in those things in medical school, and then I got to my internship and realized I really didn't like primary care very much and I didn't think long term I wanted to be in private practice because it just seemed like it might get dull mm. down the road and then I thought okay now I need to rewire this and go into academics which is how I ended up subspecializing and I I ended up going the exact opposite of where I thought I would be. So I thought I'd do primary care. I ended up in the intensive care unit. You know, I thought I'd do international health. And again, ICU is just not (laughs) really what people need in the world. But I did that because that was where my interest in medicine lay. And I also thought I would do clinical research. And I ended up in a program because I was a foreigner. And a lot of fellowship programs don't take foreign students. I didn't have a ton of choices. I ended up at Yale, which is a great program but they didn't really have a very strong clinical research program at the time. Sure. And so I ended up doing, I was like, well, you know, when in Rome, I should probably do what they're good at. So I went into the lab and fell in love with it. Like I just fell in love with research. So I didn't end up where I thought I would be, but at each stage I liked it more and more.
1: Sure. Yeah, that's uh rational optionality and decision trees, like always generally good good tools to have if you're yeah moving forward in uncharted territories. So were you married at this point? Were you dating? Were you feeling pressures from outside forces yet to get married?
2: So I was dating and the relationships I'd been in up through my residency training didn't work out and I was feeling pretty sad because my friends were all getting married and having kids and I was, you know, 30-ish. I really wanted to get married and I i ended up, my mom died when I was a resident. I was training in Rhode Island, but I spent a lot of the year when she was sick in Toronto doing rotations in hospitals in Toronto. My program director was amazingly supportive and let yeah. me go do that. So I was sort of stuck in this position where I had a year off, an unexpected year off. And so I said, okay, I'll go travel, you know, see the world. And during that period, one of the things I did was I went to Patagonia and spent a month with Knowles, the National Outdoor Leadership School, crossing an ice cap. Oh, wow. And one of the instructors, whose name was Richard, and I fell in love and actually got married pretty quickly (laughs) after meeting.
1: Cool. Cool. And at this point, were you still writing? Were you taking notes? Did you keep a diary or journal or anything like that?
2: No, you know, I had to do a lot of writing for my job, but it was all science writing. So I wrote papers and grants, grant applications and so on. But I didn't do any other kind of writing. It was busy. You know, I got married, had kids, working full time, like just, it was so busy. But I had an idea for a novel in the back of my head, for many years and always hoped that I would get around to, to writing it. And it was really, it was my second husband who always said that I should be a writer. And in fact, the very first gift he ever gave me was a notebook in which he had written a number of writing exercises and a pen. And he said, go do these writing exercises. And he's been my champion. He's been the person, I think, who pushed me the most to write. He always thought that that was
1: what I was meant to do. How important do you think it is to find someone who can be your champion for, or maybe recognize a skill set that you don't see in yourself or kind of encourage you? Do you think that's really important? Do you think that's like- a necessary thing to accomplish what you wanna accomplish?
2: I think it really depends on the person. Sure. I think for some some people are really able to develop that confidence on their own and go out there and just do it. I think for me, especially to make such a radical change, I think it was really important for me to have somebody who believed in me and sure. who said, this is not crazy, you know, <laughs> like it's doable. Cause I'm not sure I would have had the courage to do.
1: I love that. So you are doing research you're learning everything you can. Are you in your own private practice? Are you working for a large company? I was in academics the whole time, which is
2: what I really loved. So I spent about 20, 25% of my time seeing patients and then the rest of my time with my lab doing all research related stuff and dealing with all the bureaucracy and doing some teaching as well.
1: Sure. So what was the transition like from that life to becoming a writer? How did that happen? And I know it's. There's probably a long story there, but what was what was the origins for sacred cows, and how did that your first book get created?
2: So sacred cows really came out of conversations that my husband and I had together, since we both went through divorces, and. There are a number of life circumstances that you don't expect to find yourself in. You know, people don't expect that they're sure. going to get divorced. So most people don't really put a lot of thought into it. And then when we found ourselves in that position, we started talking about so many of the attitudes that we were encountering and the stumbling blocks and started to to think, well, that doesn't really make a lot of sense, especially all of the shame surrounding it seemed Kind of contrived when we really examined where these sure, ideas try to were dig coming in from. Yeah, and
1: unpack some of it. There's no argument, generally. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah, exactly. And so as we were having these conversations, I was actually looking for books or articles by people on these subjects and didn't find any. And so Astro said, "Well, we should write a book." And I said, oh, "That's crazy." And he was like, nope, let's just do it. (laughs) And so we
1: did. Did you put a book proposal together or talk to an agent that was a friend? What was the next step?
2: So we were completely naive, didn't really understand the process. And this was more for us. It was a bit of a catharsis and also just interesting to think on these subjects. And also we wanted to get something out in the world so that other people going through divorce could get this perspective because we just felt like there wasn't enough of a compassionate hand being held out to people going through divorce in our society. There's a lot of shade <laughs> thrown at people in that situation. Oh, and definitely. that's not what they need at that time.
1: No, yeah, um, you don't. I'm, I'm, I'm sure I would imagine that would be like a situation where every conversation you walk into that like the burden of proof is on you and kind of like unfairly to explain yourself and like it seems really sad, right? Because it's not like it's a pleasant experience for anyone that's going through that, or
2: yeah, I mean, it's inherently horrible. I mean, yeah. anyone who's ever broken up from any relationship knows how painful it is to go through such a breakup. And then when there are children involved, and if you're you know fighting over assets or other things, yeah. it's it's really quite horrible. And it's not just the couple. Like well, that's one of the things that we realized going through our own divorces is that divorce affects everyone you touch. And it's not just about the two people, but it's about their families and their friends and everybody is affected in some way, large or small, in the community. And so it being inherently so difficult, we thought having people tell you you're a bad person, you know, you're a failure, you're doing the wrong thing, just adds another emotional burden that isn't helpful. Because at that time, you need to be strong for your kids and you need to tearing people apart even more emotionally. Just I don't think it does anybody any good.
1: Is this a situation where you're starting to write the book and you're getting together the seven sacred cows? Is this a situation where you are encountering all of these things explicitly? Are you compiling research from friends? Or is it just your husband and your experiences at this point? How are you getting all those data points?
2: So we would brainstorm ideas. We talk about certain situations, things that people had said to us, or things that we'd read, or that counselors had said to us, and sort of throw it into this grab bag of research points. I also did a fair amount of research. So some of the topics were a little bit more academic, like the effect of divorce on children. So I read a lot of the literature and spoke to people who our social scientists to get their impressions about the research that's been done. So
1: This is one of the biggest misconceptions, I think, with divorce is that the data behind what actually happens to children and families after divorces doesn't get shared or talked about that much. Could you talk a little bit about that, what actually happens or what the data tells us?
2: Yeah, sure. I think that most people make the assumption that children whose parents are divorced, that they are disadvantaged in life, that they're more likely to have emotional problems, that they'll be less successful, that there'll be this long tail from this divorce that will follow them through life. And what we discovered was that there was just no scientific support for that assumption whatsoever, that Yes, it's painful for some children, for many children to have their parents be divorced. It's not a fun situation for them to be in, right. but that the, this idea that as adults, they were going to be less successful in these various ways, it turns out that there's really nothing to back that up. And even things that are demonstrably true, like if your parents are divorced, you are more likely to get divorced yourself. That is sort of presented by our society in this way of like, oh, you're a broken person. You know, right. your parents were divorced. You don't know how to have a relationship. It's just it's not going to work out for you either. But that's not necessarily the explanation, right? I mean, if you come from a family where you don't have religious barriers to divorce the culturally, where divorce right. is an acceptable solution, and also where you've seen your parents get out of a bad marriage and go on and have happier you know, lives, happier lives yeah. afterward, you might be more open to doing that yourself than staying in a bad marriage. I mean, that's just another interpretation, but sure. why is it that we always take the most negative interpretation, you know?
1: Yeah. Is that just because of our evolutionary history and we're prone to recognize threats or just imagine threats is what has kept us alive? What What are your thoughts there?
2: Well, so, I mean, nobody knows, but my own personal view is that marriage has been a really important institution for centuries in Western society. And it used to be primarily an economic institution. So it was really about keeping money in the family, building wealth and preserving wealth. Building
1: local power, amassing alliances, yeah.
2: Exactly, and also having resources for children. And so I think that there was motivation for society to convince people to get married and stay married because that was seen as good for society. Definitely, yeah. I think that, you know, the nature of marriage has changed incredibly. Now you can have children without getting married, you can get married without having children, you kinda of have to spouses who have equal financial resources. It's really not as important anymore in terms of inheritance and so on. Um, So a lot of those reasons for getting married, the social reasons or societal reasons have gone away. But I think there's been this kind of hangover of these pressures on people to get married and stay married. And what I find a little bit ironic is that there's so little barrier on the way into marriage. You know, people get married on a whim (laughs) sometimes. And there's not a lot of thought often that goes into it. And yet there's so many barriers on the way out.
1: Really, really interesting. Are there any other stats or kind of your favorite sacred cows that you feel like more people need to be aware of? Maybe like one or two?
2: Well, so I think the most important one was when I already mentioned, and that's the one we get the most pushback on, that there isn't scientific evidence that it in the long term harms children.
1: And just a quick question about that. So is the majority of that feedback emotionally charged, do you find, or do you find like ad hominem attacks? Yeah.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Where you get called horrible names. Yeah. It's a very emotional subject for people.
1: Yeah. I I can't imagine because it's, it seems like something where there's uh, anytime you have that much emotion, somebody's hurting. Do you ever find that you're able to like talk to those people who are clearly hurting and reason with them or after they maybe exchange a couple messages with you? I don't know if you choose to respond or I'm just curious about how you approach that.
2: So I don't usually engage. What I found is that the people who You know, have the screeds in the YouTube comments or the
1: the Amazon.
2: Yeah, Yeah. we we have some people who go on there and just write these total like religious screeds. Yeah.
1: And certain people will follow you around too, which is just hilarious. And they continue to like uh, on every social platform. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. um, Um, But a lot of them
2: haven't actually read the book.
1: Yeah. You can tell from what
2: they're writing. So I had written some essays. There was one essay I wrote in Quartz called American Parenting is. Ruining the American Marriage, I think it was called or something like that, that went viral. And so a lot of people sort of glommed onto that and then would go to Amazon and and write some terrible review of our book because they disagreed with what I was saying in the article that I wrote. Or So I don't know that it's helpful to try to have reasoned conversations with people who aren't open minded enough to even read the book. Sure. And so I
1: don't tend to engage them. So you're compiling these data points and doing all this research. Are there a couple studies that you found? Are we able to find any studies that showed how marriage might be essential to having – getting kind of like over that net rate of replenishment, the 2.11 number needing to grow and propagate a civilization or society? Like what are your thoughts on is marriage vital to ensuring that couples have more than that 2.11 children?
2: Well, so I didn't come across any – Data. So I would say the most surprising thing to me, having come from the medical field, is how much social science is a cottage industry. How underfunded it is. How little really rigorous research is out there. Right. Almost every study I picked up was like you could pick it apart in seconds in terms of the technique that they used to do their study. So there's sure. there's real paucity of. Solid data on these issues, and then I think if you look at it on a global scale, there are so many other factors that are involved. Like there are countries where marriage rates are high, like Pakistan, where you also have a high birth rate. You have places where marriage rates are low, like you know Sweden, where you also have a low birth rate. But a lot of that those are really good examples along socioeconomic. Lines sure. Right. So the rich people in Pakistan are not having 10 kids. I don't know about poor people in Sweden. They have a good social net so they really yeah. don't have the poor people. I'm not sure that it would be possible to sort of, even if you had the numbers that you could really draw. You can't any,
1: draw too many insights any, yeah, from that.
2: I don't know that you could draw any conclusion because there's so many confounding factors.
1: It seems like the best way forward is kind of what you talked about earlier is like decision trees, thinking about rational optionality, thinking about your own happiness or discovering yourself as a person, figuring out who you are. Is there any advice you like to generally give about how people can think about marriage in kind of a new way that might be beneficial or kind of like help them relax a bit more maybe? (laughs) About marriage? I
2: I wish I had great advice. I think it's such a complicated subject now that we marry for love. I think that it was easier to give advice in the old days where you could say, you know, pick someone who's going to be a solid citizen, who's not going to be abusive, who's going to keep a roof over the head or over your heads and so on. But now that people marry for love, I'm not, I really feel at a loss. I have a great marriage with my husband, we're really madly in love. And I would want that for everybody. Everyone experiences that so differently. So I would like to say to people, hold out until you right. find that thing. But of course, how people experience love probably differs from person to person, and and there are other things that you might want, like a family. You know, I'm very glad that I got married when I did. I wouldn't have kids otherwise. So I know I don't advise people. I just if they want to come talk to me about the problems that they're sure. having, I'll do my best to walk them through it. But I certainly don't have blanket advice.
1: So could you tell us a little bit about your first novel and how that came about, and why did you choose to write a fiction? Sure.
2: Well, so I'd always wanted to write a novel. I love novels. And as I mentioned earlier, I had one in the back of my head that I wanted to write, and I ended up not writing that one first. I wrote that one second. And so the novel that was just published in May is called All the Ever Afters, and it is the story of Cinderella's stepmother's life. So it reads a bit like a memoir, starting from when she's 10 years old, you follow her till she's around 50 years old. I wrote that because I was really struggling myself with being a stepparent. It was, again, sort of like divorce. It's one of those things that you don't grow up thinking, oh, I want to be a stepmother when I grow up. (laughs) Like I just can imagine exactly what that's going to be like. So, of course, I hadn't thought about it. And then I got into this relationship and realized that it's inherently really difficult, that there are these stumbling blocks that are part and parcel of the relationship. Because the children, especially in the case of divorce, where they have two loving, supportive parents already, they're not looking for another parent. They don't want a third parent, some person to come into their life and make rules and suck attention away from them, from their, their parents. So they're bound to see you somewhat skeptically just because that's not something that they necessarily are looking for. And then I think it's also hard for the stepparent because we we sort of assume that if you put a child and a parent together, whether natural or not, that there's automatically going to be this bond there. But, you know, it doesn't always work that way, especially when you're strangers meeting for the first time. You don't necessarily sure. have this love bond. And if the child resents you and says, oh, and, you know, cook me dinner, <laughs> but still is not appreciating you, bond doesn't that, love you, grade, like yeah. it can be tough to be in that position of, I mean, it's hard to be a parent regardless, but it's extra hard when you're not getting the love. <laughs>
1: right. So for anybody out there that's listening that is on the fence about marriage or maybe reading a novel to explore and experiment with their own challenges. What do you have to say to anybody that's listening right now and thinking like, well, I don't know. I think divorce is pretty negative. Anything that you would say?
2: So I think divorce is pretty negative. It was a horrible event. Like I had cancer shortly after I got divorced and oh, well. divorce was way worse than cancer. I mean, thank God I had survived it. But just like it is one of the worst things you can go through in your life so i would say yes divorce is absolutely negative however that said i would say so don't do it (laughs) unless you have to like i would avoid it at any cost i mean, not at any cost obviously i would avoid it if there's any good way to to avoid going through a divorce but that said if you know other people who are going through divorces reach out to them like show some compassion for people who are going through such a horrible time rather than judging try to put yourself in their position, which I think we don't do enough in in this in our agree. life. Yeah. And that's what the story of Cinderella's Stepmother is really about too. It's sort of asking readers to look at this woman who was not a great stepparent. You know, she wasn't sure. very good to Cinderella, but try to understand her. Try to understand what-
1: Maybe she's is... coming from a great place or trying to. People are complicated. <laughs> they definitely are. That's for sure. So we like to wrap up every interview with a bit of a lightning round where we ask some rapid fire questions about your favorite media, books, apps, music, things like that. Are you ready? Yes. Okay. Uh, best book you've read in the last year? Circe by Madeline Miller. What was the premise or what's it about?
2: So it is the story of Circe the Witch from Homer's Iliad. The story is told from a woman's perspective, so it's a very different twist on all the old Greek myths, but all the all the characters are there in the story. I just thought it was really, it was beautifully written and I thought it was so interesting to get this different perspective on it. And it also, for me, now that I'm writing novels, it's really hard for me to turn off my inner critic sure. as, as I'm reading. And I I found that this was really refreshing because I already knew the stories and since everything is Deus ex machina when you're a god. <laughs> I wasn't like, well, what would be the motivation for this character right. to do this? I was like, well, because he's a great god. Yeah. <laughs> That's how he did that. So it was also a very relaxing read for me.
1: That's a great strategy as a writer. Yeah, write yourself into those <laughs> positions. I, I like that. Any type of favorite albums or playlists that you're listening to on repeat?
2: So my husband's mostly in charge of the playlists. I have my girl tunes that I like to listen to, which is a lot of a lot of Canadian pop artists, female pop artists and any favorites? Everyone loves Sarah McLachlan.
1: (laughs) If you do have time to take a break, put your feet up. Are you watching uh, any TV series or movies or anything like that? Or do you not watch TV?
2: We're watching The Handmaid's Tale right now, which is amazing. It's on Hulu, right? Uh, Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. Margaret Atwood is one of my very favorite writers as a Canadian. I'm extra attached to her writing. I love the book. So, and I just think the television show is so well done. It's as good as the book in a different kind of way.
1: And final question here. So we'd like to end our interviews with just a reminder for everybody about why it is we're doing and why maybe you're doing the work that you do. So if you could share a story about maybe a reader's life who somebody encountered your work and it helped them in a, in a special way. Are there is there a story like that that you reflect on from time to time that gives you kind of like energy to keep going?
2: Yeah, I mean, I love hearing that people were really touched by all the ever afters. And again, the novel is my preferred form. But I have to say the more inspiring feedback I've gotten has been about sacred cows. When people reach out and they say, I was in a really tough place and I read your book and it really made me see this whole situation differently. Sure. And made me feel better about myself. When I read things like that, I just feel like, yes, that was well worth the hours
1: <laughs> that so I put cool. into that. Danielle, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thank this you a blast.
2: so much. Yeah. It's been great.
1: Take care.
0: Hey, this is Ian from the mission. I talked to Fortune 500 CIOs and IT visionaries about how much effort and energy they put into securing their devices. But they have teams of hundreds of IT professionals, an advantage that the average business doesn't have, until now. Jamf Now makes it easy to set up, manage, and protect your company's Apple devices. As your business grows, so does your digital inventory, making it harder to manage everyone's Apple devices. This is especially true if you have remote employees like we do at The Mission. With Jamf Now, you can check your digital inventory, distribute Wi-Fi and email settings, deploy apps, protect company data, or even lock and wipe a device as needed, from anywhere. And all of this with no IT experience needed. The Mission Daily listeners can start securing their businesses today by setting up their first three devices for free, forever. Add more starting at just $2 a month per device. Create your free account today at jamf.com missiondaily that's jamf.com dot slash Mission Daily. We love Jamf and you will too.
2: Hey listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.